This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 50 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been, and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face-to-face, use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. So generally I find I can get the YouTube version out within an hour, you know, it's so quick. Whereas with the audio, it takes about five, six hours. Uh, Another thing on my to-dos and part of the reason why I'm probably not doing Twitch or podcasting right now is one of my mental blockers is that my Yeti microphone started acting up. That's the voice of my guest this week, Jordan Arneson. He is a linguist, a software engineer, and Twitch specialist. Jordan poses the question, have you ever thought about data that you should share or not share on the internet? In fact, we've been doing it for years through our loyalty customer cards at retail stores. Listen as Jordan blows the myths on whether government holds lots of data on us. In fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's private companies, and they sell the data back to the government. We also talk about climate change and how Jordan, with Through Climate Base, is matching employers with employees. Finally, we hear how he's using Twitch to attract customers as a social media platform in a way that you never thought possible. My first question for Jordan was, if somebody met you in a bar or even in the street, how would you explain what you do? These days, I think I would say that I solve challenging problems and I support others in taking the next step. Um, I've kind of had a a weird background with lots of different jobs. And so that's the thing that's been consistent over time is uh, sort of being able to take in a lot of information that maybe feels overwhelming to others and to help identify the parts that matter and uh, where, where, where you can have the most leverage with your your time and energy. What were those weird jobs and what were those experiences that you could really bring to the table that have really helped? Oh, weird jobs. Okay. Well, so uh, in my younger days, uh, I've, I've done things like working for an auto parts store. I was uh, a caddy at Pebble Beach. So if you're familiar with the, the world of golf, I was a, a fancy person <laughs> carrying golf clubs on a nice, beautiful golf course on the water. Um, That was a a trip. Uh, You interact with lots of interesting people in that experience. And I've done uh, intelligence work, the kind of top secret annoying, I can't actually tell you about it. That's intriguing. (laughs) I know. Yeah. There's there's things I can say around it. Um, And there are definitely things in the world that everybody knows about that I was a part of. Yeah. Yeah. So if anybody ever has a situation where they're like, what should I share publicly versus what stays internal? I'm pretty great at, does this need to be a secret or is this something that, you know, is uh, more appropriate to share out? Um, I, I think actually it's very much informed uh, my, my, my personal preferences on, I prefer to share things rather than keep them secret. It's like quite a burden to have a job where you're not allowed to talk about it. You know, that's quite intriguing, actually. And I'd love to go down that kind of rabbit hole a little bit, because, you know, what do we need to be aware of when we are sharing on social media or through the internet, you know, in terms of what you should pass on and not pass on in your, in your world? I didn't come out of that experience 
um, hyper paranoid. If anything, I think that at least not in so far as the government is concerned, I do think that corporations have much more useful data on people than governments do. At this point, governments are buying it from corporations. I don't think people should be paranoid, but I think that as long as you have an equal right to access or view the data that has been collected on you and the right to demand its removal, you should feel more or less okay. Because I think the reality is that with the way that things are with collection and big data and you, you pay for your free services and information, that's just a fact. And so as long as you go into that agreement, knowing that that's what you're doing, um, I think that you can be more informed. Um, I, hopefully most people are wary these days, but I used to be wary even back when, you know, every, every grocery store wants to give you a discount card. And I know that that is just to track your purchases. It, there's no real discount there. You pay more <laughs> for not giving them your information about your purchases, right? Well, that, that's very true. I mean, I think that I kind of figured that out many years ago as well. But here's the thing. How valuable is data and how do you value data? Its value is in its application. And so I think this is where there's, it's easy for there to be a, a cognitive distance between potential value of your data and actual value and use of your data. And I think this is why it's so easy to share freely a lot of pieces of information online, especially if you do it across multiple platforms is because it feels like it's not that much. Um, but anytime it's associated with the same piece of information, usually your email address, they can, somebody somewhere is able to tie that all back together. Um, now to reassure people, I've also worked in companies that we like to sell things based on known information about customers. So, you know, Facebook ads and things like that. I don't know. Is that evil or does it help me show you an opportunity that is the kind that you wanted to see anyway? So I can see both sides of it. But I think the future uh, will probably see more more thought and care put into consumer rights when it comes to who is. If I followed you around on the street, David, with a notepad and wrote down every single thing that you did yeah. that was visible in public, you know, uh, technically that's probably legal. I don't know about in Canada, maybe the projections are better there. But so there is kind of this, like, what does it mean to be public on the internet versus public on the street? And if I invite you into my website and you take actions there, is that the same as going into a restaurant where they are fully able to record and track your every move up to and including using the restroom, right? There, there are things like very intimate details that you can reveal online that are the equivalent of people watching you in the bathroom. And so why, why haven't we identified those places and, you know, made obvious rules like this is the bathroom of the internet no cameras allowed you know that's a great pragmatic approach to it because i think you know with uh, the information we have access to information and and people's personal viewpoints and things it can really stoke the fire can't it a little bit and people can really go off on a tangent and get very paranoid about it but if we put it in pragmatic terms and i love the way that you said that if i followed you around in the street with a notebook you'd probably think well what's this guy doing but you're, you're gathering information and then you know basically at the end of it you could have a situation where you could confront that person because you feel as if they're stalking you. So there is a there is a way to rectify the situation. Mm -hmm. I think often as not with the kind of digital world, that they say there's a way of rectifying it, but you know damn well that once that information's out there in the ether, 
it can be manipulated. There's something that can be done with it. And I think that's where the kind of paranoia kind of sort of kicks in a little bit, isn't it? That, you know, you put a photograph, a video, or your know, text information onto the internet. Once it's gone, pretty much you've lost control of it, haven't you, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, maybe in the future, you know, hopefully in the future, we will see solutions that are maybe better at some ability to track things down on the internet and actually sort of remove or disable them once, you know, sort of ownership or rights have been confirmed, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how, how, how much on a totally other track we want to go with this topic, but yeah, they, no, that's fair enough. <laughs> Cause yeah, what if you take a picture and post it online versus I take a picture of you and post it online? You know, it, it's, yeah. it gets tricky. So I think there's a lot there, but I would say, uh, yeah, again, getting back to, uh, my, my top secret thing, I would say you give away way more information for free on the internet every single day than any government has spent intentionally trying to spy on you. I guarantee it. Like, unless you make it to the top of a list for reasonable or unreasonable reasons, it's very unlikely. Uh, and I will say that the rules about spying on U.S. citizens are enforced. We do not do it unless there were super, super secret rooms that I was not a part of. Um, I, I always tell everybody we absolutely follow the rules when it comes to U.S. citizens and collection of intelligence. Okay. Well, thanks for that reassuring uh, yeah. statement there. Um, let's circle back to what you do now, because I'm, I want to really get into some of the platforms you were talking about previously. So give the listeners a kind of an overview now of where you are, because I know that you've been involved with Head of Administration Enrollment at MakeSchool.org, but now you do Climate Base. So tell us a little bit about those two organizations and how you've got to where you've got to now. The super short version is that... Uh, my top secret job was not super fun and I couldn't talk to anyone about it anyway. So I wanted to uh, make a change and uh, I used my GI Bill to go to college. I got my degree in cognitive science, uh, still with a very heavy focus on linguistics and computer science. From there, that was how I ended up at Make School, first as a, a student of their program, then software engineer, and eventually working my way up sort of on the admission side, creating curriculum, working as an instructor, performing the function of admissions, um, interviewing people, bringing them on board. And then, yeah, like you said, kind of ended up uh, sort of at the top, uh, right at the end before our bachelor's program in computer science was acquired by our partner university that we were working with. So sort of a non-traditional startup with a non-traditional acquisition at the end in terms of like the details, but functionally that's uh, how it worked. And that provided me the opportunity to move to my current project where I am now at Climate Base, like you said. And Climate Base is another startup. And the goal is to connect people with jobs in climate. Uh, both people who are coming right out of school, getting their degrees in sustainability or engineering kind of related fields, but who are still trying to like get connected up with opportunities, as well as people like myself who have come through several other roles and are trying to find a way to bring those skills into a place that has direct meaningful impact on, uh, you know, a very big issue, right? Climate action. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about climate change and, and, and I'm trying to be very practical here because the, there's obviously the planet does what it does. Okay. You know, every three or 400 years, the, the planet tilts in a slightly different angle and we get slightly different climates based on historical data. So sometimes we go through a cold period and sometimes we go through a warm period. 
How much influence do you think that has on climate change as opposed to what humans have on climate change? Because let's be totally upfront, humans have polluted the climate for hundreds of years, you know, worse than what it is now in many ways, because we've had the, you know, the Industrial Revolution, you know, 1740, when the steam engine first evolved, and then, you know, things got started, and then we had wars, two world wars. And really, after the Second World War, I mean, pollution was horrendous. I mean, if you look at what was happening in, you know, in the US, around San Francisco, and places like that, where you got the heavy smogs, London, where you got the, the pea supers, as we call them, the smog with the, you know, so really, relatively speaking, where are we on that scale? How much is it, you know, human influence? How much is, you know, the planet just does what it does? And and how do, how do we explain all that and make it real? I, I would say it gets tricky because it's the, there's so many factors, right? And we're, we're also talking about impact over time. And I would actually uh, go all the way back to earlier human history, where we know we, we're seeing evidence now that um, even if in smaller, more localized ways, humans have always had a significant impact on at least their local climates. I mean, a beaver does, right, when it builds a dam. And so humans do as well. And I think that rather than assigning some amount of quote unquote blame, the way I think about it is that we are a part of an ecosystem and we have an impact on it regardless of, you know, what percent impact people feel, you know, is correct or emotionally feels true to them. The part that I like to focus on is that let's ignore how it happened and let's look at what is happening and how that impacts our existing structures. Because I think that's actually a more useful place to be where, great, maybe I don't know why the weather is changing, but uh, whether it is us or, you know, a natural phase, the fact is that things are changing significantly in ways that we haven't historically had to deal with, with the infrastructure that we have as it is, right? If these things happen in the past that we don't have a record of, what happened? Entire cities, nations got wiped out. So regardless of what caused it, we need strategies where we are just looking up, looking around at the real world and saying, wow, this place is getting hotter or wetter or more flooded. How do we address that? And there's different options along that path. And I think that where we're at right now, from a historical perspective, where things were more stable, again, within our human industrial modern context, right? We sort of take things for granted. We build out to the coast. When things get destroyed, we're just like, well, this is the spot that we're in. So we just double down and we rebuild, often with, you know, improved materials based on the the era or the time. But usually it's a default assumption that we will replace and rebuild um, rather than what may need to be uh, considered in some situations, which is how do we rethink where we're building? Do we need an entire different, like if we're committed to living in a tornado zone, right? And we know that tornadoes are getting wildly more strong or unpredictable, how do we account for that? What? How do we use our technologies to improve warning systems, make sure that houses are built more integrated into the ground, for example? Um, so that's really where I think is the most productive place to be, because we can all agree that we want to be safe from climate disasters, regardless of their source. They are happening and we can't make them stop happening. So how do we just 
recognize, you know, if we're going to explore new worlds, you identify the climate on that new planet and you adapt to it. So I think it's, it's just hard because it is sad to have to acknowledge that things are changing so significantly that we have to change our processes. But I think that if we let go of the need to assign blame, then we can move forward with everyone on the same page of just being like, we want to solve this problem. We'll, if we have to, we can figure out later again what the ultimate source was and, and reduce that over time. But we at least need to address what's currently happening and move to solve those challenges right now. And I think that's great. I think you're absolutely right. You know, let's not look back. Always let's look forward and let's see how we can alleviate some of the issues that we have. And, you know, learn from history, of course. Uh, you know, like let's not build on floodplains. Let's not, you know, in, impact a river's right. you know, flood delta and things like that, because that's really important. That's happened over thousands of, if not millions of years. And we have to be respectful of that. And I think you're absolutely right. Now, if somebody was in the sphere of kind of area that you're looking at at the moment with the company you have, uh, Climate Base, how would you actually take them through the process of linking them up with a correct career path, if that's the right thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you go about that? What's the practical sort of steps? Yeah. So for for right now, apart from the fellowship, Climate Base functions as a uh, job board focused on climate. So for somebody who sort of either is exploring or knows that that's what they're looking for, it's actually an excellent resource because part of the problem that Climate Base uh, sort of was created to solve was that it's actually hard to find out which companies are focused on climate because a lot of them are so small right now. They're just getting off the ground. So it's a, it's just a really good resource to get a sense of who are the actual companies as well as what maybe are the themes or patterns or areas or industries that are getting enough investment right now that they're able to you know dive deeper onto these topics, for example. So that's just a great resource in general for anybody that wants to just start looking around. For the fellowship specifically, it's something that I think about a lot because I'm sort of ultimately responsible for the overall design of it. And so the fellows that we're selecting, first of all, we're looking for a mix so that we're not getting just people who have just graduated and we're not getting just people who are career switchers. And we're also not getting just people who have an existing background in climate. So we're basically creating a mix of all of these people because they all have vested interest in connecting up with people from the other groups, right? The people who are in these climate companies already, um, the struggle that they're having is it is hard for them to find the people that have the skills to move into their space. There's sort of like obvious ones in energy where you might think, oh, well, I did electrical engineering, so I'm interested in wind or solar technology, and that might help you find a job. But if you are someone like myself or, or even like a software engineer, right, it's kind of a role that can work in any field. And so if you don't have a connection already, you're not quite sure where to start, you might just end up at another social media company because they reached out to you, right? So it's basically just helping people find the jobs that connect with their their passion or, or their, um, you know, their purpose um, in wanting to make a difference with the climate. So just bringing the right people into the space, first of all, um, and then we're going to have a mix of educational workshops that are kind of like an overview of the space right now. What are the areas or industries that are seeing a lot of investment or new ideas? Uh, we'll be having uh, you know speakers and panels coming in from the industry who's already working, as well as some people who have just transitioned into it and what their process was um, so they can sort of mentor and support the job seekers. Um, and then the part that I'm most excited about is that we actually want this to be a hands-on resume building experience so that whether you're already in the industry or you're a student, we want everybody to work on a capstone project 
So something that they can accomplish in a few weeks time, similar to something you might do in like a, you know, a college project or something like that. And so I'm really excited for that. We're creating a structure where, you know, there will be demo opportunities uh, the final week. And so fellows will have the opportunity to work on an individual project or to pair up, for example, some new grads with some, you know, industry veterans, right? Because there are new ideas that they can bring together and maybe they'll want to generate a new report or maybe a software engineer will hook up with a designer and they'll create um, an interactive, you know, a simple one page uh, website that has a cool data visualization on some important aspect of climate change. So it's kind of a, a broad range. I, I don't even know what to expect, but we, we want to provide that space so that by the end of the program, they can say, this is what I have actually done to start applying my skills so that then uh, whichever hopefully recruiters or, or companies they've managed to connect up with, they can show already that they've put in the work. They're the kind of person who you know wants to get their hands dirty. So what are you seeing from your position now, the, the biggest inroads into climate change kind of education and application? What are the things that are really starting to work in your opinion? I'm not sure uh, because it's it seems like it's still very early on. There are, of course, programs like uh, some sustainability or sort of environmentally focused programs all the way up through masters and PhDs at you know various universities. Again, it's kind of the there's a disconnect between the people who kind of came into the industry or like started out the industry, you know, 40 to 20 years ago, they've been in it, building it up, sort of, again, uh, creating it from other industries. Again, uh, I think they also don't maybe even know all the possibilities that can still be taken advantage of with new technology from, you know, the younger generation that's coming up through the schools. And of course, the schools, even though they have these degree programs, there's always a question um, in higher education of how well the curriculum is staying up to date. And even though it's a newer program, it's also a super new field where things are moving very quickly. So I think that you know, if, if somebody is looking for uh, an opportunity like that, that's something you would want to look at is making sure that the professors or the industry mentors that whatever program has, like, are they up to date? Are they doing the work? You know, in computer science, I had the experience where your professor has been a professor for 20 years and they're still teaching you 40 year old computer science technology and fundamentals are great, but I went several years through college intending to get a degree in computer science before anybody told me about GitHub, which is like a professional tool that literally every software engineer uses. So you kind of see some disconnects like that in a lot of fields. And my guess would be that in sustainability, it's a larger problem because what is a sustainability degree that still can be so diverse? It could span so many different fields. So I think a lot of people are looking for programs like this fellowship that are shorter and more condensed and more networking or relationship building oriented because that's really the jumping off point is getting getting your foot in the door, right? Just like those programs, in reality, a large part of it is like you're going to have a very specific network of people who are in your major so that you can eventually grow throughout your career. But that's what I would say is it seems like just the the knowledge of the available opportunities and networking with people already in the space seems to be the main barrier right now until the sort of field or it's not even really a field it's kind of a it's a multi-industry focus right to to do something climate action oriented 
way through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Jordan Arneson. He's a software engineer and a linguist. Next, I want to ask Jordan a little bit more about his family and where his culture came from. And also, why does he rave so much about Twitch? So I was born and raised in Washington State, Western Washington, the wet side, Moved once when I was young, so I ended up in a what to me at the time felt like very rural. And, and I've been to other parts of the U.S. now, so my uh, hometown version of rural was like a little piece of rural. But, um, you know, we had several acres of land and I spent my summers running around in the woods behind the house kind of experience. But we were also close enough that I was able to bike to town. Uh, so I think I got kind of the best of uh, both worlds. What did mom and dad do? I mean, where did the extended family come from? What was the cultural background? So when I grew up, I think at that time, the majority of my extended family was also in uh, in Washington State. My father was a child of a Catholic family. So, uh, you know, he was one of 13 kids and uncounted other um, fosters and a few adoptions. Um, so his, his family, uh, going over to the Arneson family Christmas, for example, was always quite the event. Uh, you just kind of show up and you're running around and there's like 50 people at all times. And yeah, contrasting that with my mother's side, much smaller family, her and her sister. And, you know, so much, much smaller, uh, more, more likely on that side that we'd hang out with just grandma or just grandpa or just uh, Aunt Monica, for example, and get more intimate time together in those environments. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I was uh, very outdoorsy, but also a, a bookworm as a kid. So uh, like I said, I some summers was, uh, you know, out with the neighbor kids running around until the street lights came on, that kind of thing. And it was like, get your butt back home uh, before dinner yeah. um, or, or else you lose your privileges. You know, and then there were other days where I, you know, we got the Internet pretty, pretty young. And so I got hooked into some online games. So there were some days uh, where I would be inside all day on that. It's funny that, isn't it? But you had the, you had the best of both worlds by the sounds of things. And uh, interesting, mm-hmm. where does the Arneson name come from? What's, where's the kind of cultural links on that? Do you know, you've ever done the kind of, you know, uh, ancestry.com type of thing, research on that? I haven't done uh, ancestry.com to like see what kind of documents and stuff they might have, but I've done 23andMe, which is uh, sort of uh, officially confirmed, no un, un, uh, unexpected surprises but, <laughs> that don't fit the family history. Um, and then on my mom's side, um, Michaelson, so kind of also from Norwegian stock on that end. And then, you know, there's, there's a little bit of Irish. I've got uh, O'Cooley uh, in my, in my family history. There's a, a song in a castle somewhere, but I haven't been. So That's great. Um, I, 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 I don't try to claim too much of that heritage, but of course it's a, it's a fun little thing to know that there's a war about a cow or a big fight or a song about a cow that got stolen. I don't remember. Um, but it sounds like the kinds of things that would become an Irish epic. It sounds fantastic. Well, so, okay. So now you alluded to the fact that you were a bit of a bookworm and things like that. So mm-hmm. what was Jordan sort of doing at 12? What was his thoughts for the future, his dreams for the future? What did you want to do? All of the the books that I read as a kid, I think aligned very well with my otherwise outdoorsy lifestyle. So it was all like, you know, young kids adventuring, traveling the world, you know, exploring America, like that kind of a thing. And so I think I just always grew up with the idea that I would 
sail the world or travel around or be an explorer in a jungle or something like that. And I don't know that I've quite lived up to the fictional book narratives of that, but I do think that it gives me yeah, a sense of excitement. I'm not um, afraid of doing new things. Multiple times I've sort of gotten rid of everything I own that didn't fit in my car and just said, I don't know where I'm staying when I get to the other side, but let's go. Wow. Yeah. So it kind of, it's the, it's the modern version, I guess, of sailing off in a tiny ship uh, without the risk of drowning, I guess. Yeah. Well, but it's the wandering nomad, isn't it? It's yeah. uh, that kind of idea that you can just go out and explore and really, you know, you, you, you get rid of the things that are weighing you down and just keep the things that you need to survive with and off you go. Yeah. And I think that, you know, w- when I'm at home and of course with these last few years, it also, you know, there's a very habit, cozy, just stay at home oriented side of me as well. But I think that's why I like to go out and do longer adventures because then I get in a, in a whole other mode where, yeah, you know, it's like whatever fits in my backpack, that's probably really all I need. And anything else that the world throws at me, you know, whether interesting humans to interact with or, you know, challenge to overcome, I feel like I've done it enough and I've met enough kind and amazing humans in the world to know that kindness and support is the default outside of particular places and particular circumstances. And so I I think I just have a lot of faith in humanity and, and trusting that going out and being an explorer in the world is one of the best ways to connect with other humans. So what inspired you to do what you did at university? Uh, So I went uh, with the intention of getting my degree in computer science and um, you know, I will confess I was perhaps not as emotionally strong at that time, or I just really believed the sort of initial uh, wall of, uh, of challenge that arose when I arrived and that, um, my math was not so fresh and, um, the computer science program, uh, I went to UC Berkeley for their computer science program. Cause that was what I wanted to do. And <clears throat> this is another piece of advice I give people sometimes is, you know, going to the place that's the best is, good. It's often good, but you have to look at how they get their best results. And at least right now, because of the highly competitive nature of computer science programs at these top universities, the way that they are maintaining the best is that they have a large pool of applicants and they skim off the top. And that's a very different experience uh, from sort of where I ended up at Make School, for example, which was a program focused on identifying the people at the bottom that had never been allowed to have the same opportunity to rise to the top. And we actually helped bring them up there. And so, you know, I, I had a negative experience uh, and I ended up changing majors because I wasn't already great at computer science <laughs> and, and they didn't have the incentive to, reach me at my level and lift me up. They were able to just take people that already, you know, just, just came out of high school and went to a school where they had computer science, for example. So that was um, eye-opening for me, though at the time I did take that as um, a message that I was too stupid for computer science because that's, all, nobody said, hey, just to let you know, we think you have amazing potential, but unfortunately the pool is full. Yeah, It was more like a, if you can get through these three classes and not fail out without much support, because we can't give it to you, 
then we will accept you into the major. And so the message to me was, I guess I'm too stupid <laughs> to make it into the major. Um, so that was, that was hard, but I ended up switching into cognitive science, which is interdisciplinary. So it still uses computer science. It's linguistics, psychology, sociology. So for me, it was a great fit. And I will say I probably learned more important things in the classes I took for that degree than I would have if I had stayed in computer science. I picked up computer science stuff afterwards, but I don't think I ever would have been able to pick up those same other classroom experiences outside of college. That's really interesting, but not unusual what you just said there. And I, I take you up on being too stupid because yeah. nobody's too stupid. It's just that it doesn't fit the mold that you're currently in. You know, right. it isn't firing your emotions or feeding that soul. So clearly cognitive science, you were much more about the feelings and about getting connected to people rather than the kind of hard numbers of computer you know, science and that type of thing. But you could apply it later, which is really, really good. Hey, listen, let's take your cognitive science. Let's take your computer experience. Let's talk about platforms now. And you really got me excited about Twitch, right? Yeah. And we've talked about it and we, we've kept the listeners hanging on on this one. So tell us a little bit about, you know, for somebody who doesn't know about Twitch, because some of us don't, like, you know, we know about Facebook and Twitter and all that sort of thing. Now Twitch suddenly appears. Mm -hmm. What is the Twitch platform? And really, how did you adapt it and apply it? And how can other people apply it to, to what they want to do? Yeah, great question. So Twitch for the, for the uninitiated... If you're familiar with uh, YouTube or Facebook Live, they're sort of live streaming features. Those are features that they have just added in recent years. Twitch is a platform that has been live stream primary for its whole existence. It originally started out uh, as Justin TV. It was just this one guy who was like, hey, the internet's here. Why don't I just stream my life and see what happens? And he realized that, yes, there's enough people out there that definitely want to just watch you live your life. But in the process of developing the platform, they sort of found that the, the niche at the time that the platform made the most sense for was gamers. Because, um, you know, gaming, the rise of gaming is, is um, huge. And so as a platform, they focused on live streaming gamers. And the cool thing about it that's different as well is that because they have this gaming in their DNA, the experience as a viewer on the platform has also been highly gamified, so to speak, in positive ways where, you know, in some other platforms, things are gamified to get you to interact in ways that allow them to advertise to you more. For example, you know, like click on something. Now we know you like it. Great. With Twitch, I, I won't say that they aren't, of course, learning from your interactions, but the gamification is designed to increase your interactions with the streamer. So that's the primary focus. Like there's no ads in the experience unless the streamer is a partnered streamer and like they are running ads to support their stream, for example. There are, you know, there, there are ads in other places, but they don't, you know, you can't scroll through Instagram without every other picture being an ad, right? But on Twitch, you actually get to focus on the experience of the streamer. And so there are things you can do in chat that can impact what's on the screen. For example, you can like donate real money or you can spend sort of channel points, which are just sort of like 
tokens that indicate that you've been around in the community and you get rewarded and recognized for those things because the streamer can sort of activate prizes that you can earn or things that you can do, again, to enhance the screen. So I think last time we talked, I gave you a couple of examples. So in the gaming world, again, people would want to watch, uh, for example, Ninja is a top streamer and People just like to watch people that are really good at things. It's like, why do you watch professional sports? That's why some people will watch people play on Twitch. They want to see the best. Then there's other people who go the entertainment route. Maybe they're awful at the games that they play, but their commentary, their reactions, their vibe, their community that they are building is what you come for. And those are the spaces in Twitch that I think are really powerful because it's focused on a community experience. It's not just... I'm, you know, up here like a fancy celebrity or star and you're just down here watching me. It's like you are directly supporting me in playing this thing. We're having an experience. I'm talking with you about what's happening in chat while I'm playing. I'm asking, you know, my moderators about how their day was because they're here all the time. I know things like I have a relationship with the viewers. And so I think that's a really special thing about Twitch that the other platforms don't have yet. They're they're just like, show up and watch somebody stream. But Twitch is about building a community that you want to come back to and participate in. I advocate now that non-gamers should be using Twitch as well for the power of these community experiences that they can have while doing a live stream. Um, that's where I wanted to kind of get to really was that, okay, how do you now apply that to kind of like a business environment? And you did some, give some right. really interesting examples that you do a video, say on I don't know, TikTok or on Facebook or something, mm-hmm. and it can be quite dry. It can just be see what you, what you, what you see is what you get, but there's something in Twitch that you can do. You can start doing some very creative things. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard to describe all of the possibilities because they are, mostly just limited by the streamer's imagination. I think that's also a reason why not many people have gotten into it yet or realize that it's a space that they can be in is because there's still a very high bar of entry from a sort of awareness and then technical and then creative perspective, right? To get the most from the platform, like you can just show up and you can just stream and it can be just as non-interactive as anything else. And that's kind of the starting place. And so I think that's where, you know, I think some scaffolding or like myself going out in the world and trying to encourage people is um, what I think is useful. But, you know, there are people already that do talk shows um, on Twitch. And, you know, at a simple level, there are some tools now that make it easy for you to show a question on screen that somebody asked in chat, for example. So that's even just like a very small way where it can get you know, powerful in a sort of professional kind of way if you're not interested in getting like weird and wacky. And so when I was working at Make School, because Make School is focused on computer science education and our students and our applicants are sort of very tech focused, I was sort of leading this project where we had our student ambassadors do streams on Twitch. So one of our students hosted a talk show for an hour. He would bring in some different students and they would talk about tech news of the week, you know, and I was sort of behind the scenes doing the technical part. Basically, I I performed the role of being the scaffold to help them get their content up there. And, you know, it, it, so it was a great experience for them because, you know, I was able to use 
OBS, uh, open broadcasting software, and sort of move them around and sort of facilitate more of the interactions so that they could just focus on being on a panel, so to speak. So again, there's sort of like lightweight versions there where even if you just take your Zoom, you know, what would have been a Zoom presentation or a Zoom webinar, and you do it in something like Twitch, and you can sort of add on these extra abilities. You can like very easily slap text up on the screen or, you know, show the results of a poll, for example, like polls are a feature that are built into Twitch. Um, and I know Zoom has polls, but I guarantee you that the polls on Twitch are more fun. <laughs> like, Well, that's the point, isn't it? Because they were designed to be engaging as opposed to polls on Zoom, which are like, uh, the speaker asked a question and what's kind of like the quickest, easiest way for us to show an answer. And this is really good because I think that's the thing to stand out in the kind of the wall of noise that we have coming from the internet, because, you know, last two or three years, people are very overwhelmed. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. you, you find people aren't responding to emails anymore. They're not responding to mail drops and things like that because basically they've just got too much coming their way mm-hmm. and they can't filter out. Whereas Twitch is approaching it probably in a very, very different way, specifically for gamers originally. Mm-hmm. But what you've kind of done is you've discovered it as a kind of slightly business-like platform that you can adapt the gaming environment. And it's one that has um, it has rewards. That's the point, isn't it? Human beings, right. we like rewards and interactivity. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like Twitch has got it. And it's, it's the undiscovered... TikTok at the moment. Which is shocking. I think Twitch has been around longer than TikTok. I know. But, and, and again, you know, it, barrier to entry, right? TikTok, it's so easy, right? That's right. Um, but, you know, this, it's not everything belongs in that space, right? Because again, there's a different kind of, there's a kind of community you can have through like liking and sharing TikToks. Um, I won't deny that. But yeah, there is something very special about the community on Twitch. Because uh, again, it's one of those things where once you've built up a community, like, you know, you you start your stream with a little countdown timer that says you're going to start in five minutes. And if you have a great community, they actually don't super care when you're going to start because they're already talking to each other in chat. Like those are the kinds of experiences that I have not seen in like a YouTube live, for example. YouTube live is usually crickets in the chat or people are just saying like they're city and state. Like that's usually the extent of engagement at the beginning of a YouTube live. It's like everybody post in chat where you're from. Yeah. That's not a real interaction on Twitch. You almost like with the first time somebody pops up in chat out of a hundred people in chat. If the, if the, the streamer says, hello, welcome to the stream, Jordan, feel free to say in chat where you're from. We're a very friendly community here. That's a very different vibe. It's nice to hear that because it's almost getting to know the person rather than sell the product or the business, you know, exactly the, by virtue of the fact they're playing a particular game and they might have a sponsor or they might have somebody, you know, an ad for somebody. That really isn't the point. The point is that we're together enjoying this together and we can ask questions, interact. I love the fact about Twitch. So, so if somebody wanted to get onto Twitch, it's dead easy, is it? You know, literally type in Twitch Twitch on Internet Explorer or whatever, and then you can just log in and then create an account. It's as simple as that, is it? Yeah, yeah. So especially for for getting started, if you just want to like get a sense of like the platform, you know, again, get familiar with like how it's a little different from other spaces. Um, yeah, just Twitch TV. Um, I'm sure it'll redirect if you go to .com. Um, and you don't even need an account to start watching. So that's another, you know, nice thing as well, um, you know, that they don't gatekeep. Um, of course, there are perks for having an account and then following a channel, for example. Um, there are things like that. Um, 
but yeah, the, 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 the larger barrier to entry for sure is, uh, starting to stream and getting a sense of what's possible. There are a lot of, you know, help resources, blogs, videos that other people have made online. It changes uh, over time as new tools become available that they build out. And yeah, I think it's just one of those things can be very easy, it, a lot easier if there's somebody that you can talk to. And so here's where I will say, like, I am so excited about this. I don't care what your topic is. If you are interested in exploring what Twitch uh, could be for, as a, a different kind of live live streaming space. Like I am happy to talk to anybody about it because oh, um, I think it's a great thing. And one of the things that you said um, just a little bit ago reminded me of another thing that I think is such a, an amazing aspect of Twitch is that monetization, right? Let's not pretend that it isn't important, right? Because people who spend their time and energy, if you're not doing it just for fun, you want to make sure that there's going to be an upside. And one of the things, you know, there's several different ways you can monetize on Twitch, or not, you can just always post up a link that says, please go to my website and buy my thing or whatever. So, you know, Twitch doesn't like restrict you from promoting, cross promoting to other places where your community can support you. So that's nice. Um, but the other thing that Twitch specifically allows that again, I don't think I've ever seen in another space and is just super great from a cognitive science perspective is that in addition to the ability to subscribe to a channel, right? So similar on like, you know, YouTube, you can subscribe and sort of donate money to um, the, the creator. You can subscribe on Twitch, but what you can do on Twitch is you can also buy gift subscriptions for other people. Interesting. And right. you're like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. I can buy a gift card for other people, but it's not just a feature that exists. It is a feature that has been proactively gamified to great success, right? Because in reality, I think most people who have been in any kind of like business or promotion or sales, you you learn very quickly that, you know, you might reach out to a hundred people and, you know, 10 or fewer will be sort of super customers or super fans. Now, the power of Twitch then is like, you know, your super fans already subscribed. They can also subscribe at higher levels because they love you so much. That's another thing Twitch is smart about. But then you have these super users. They've already maxed out on their subscription to you every month. They're maybe already spending, you know, points on like stickers or like fun interactions throughout the event. But the thing that super fans love doing more than anything else is buying gift subscriptions for people hanging out in the channel who aren't yet subscribers because they are literally saying, I love this person so much. I want you to enjoy the benefits of being a sort of exclusive member of their community because that's how much I love them. And there's no limit on this. I have seen people buy 100 gift subscriptions at a time and that's all they have to do. They click a button that says, I want to spend this much money and give out this many things. And then Twitch automates the rest. And there's like alerts and prizes and things going off in chat and everybody like loses their mind with excitement. I get excited when I didn't buy the gift subscription because I know somebody just got a free gift. They're joining the community. I'm happy for them. It generates so much positivity and goodwill. Like, you know, sure, there's maybe some cognitive things behind the scenes. Is it manipulative? I don't think so. You just gave a gift to somebody. And if they don't want it, they don't have to keep subscribing. But it's very powerful. And it's one of the best ways it's it's basically your customers love your product so much that they bought a free sample for a stranger. And that's something that Twitch is designed around. 
Yeah. And it's very much, you know, I, I know my daughters are very much into the social media side of things, but into platforms where you can give prizes and you can give subscriptions and they feel really great. You know, mm -hmm. I managed to, I got this subscription for somebody and it makes them feel great. Yeah. So there's something very basic and very human about it. And I think they're, they're onto something. Well, listen, I, I could talk to you all day about Twitch for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, you did make an offer there. If anyone, somebody wanted to reach out to you about Twitch or even about, of course, climate base, which is one of the reasons mm -hmm. why you're on the program as well. What's the best way of getting a hold of you? Jordan. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. I won't make it complicated. So regardless of which thing you're interested in, you can contact me uh, at Jordan at climatebase.org. Perfect. Climatebase, all one word, no da no dashes, no spaces. And and who's the sort of person you'd like to interact with, uh, especially from climate-based point of view? Is it somebody thinking about going into the climate change environment or somebody who's already in it or somebody who's out the other side? Or somebody's got great experience maybe in recycling, for instance, you know, sort of making sure that we can bring things back into the, the circle of recycling in the world. Uh, is it all of those? I, yeah, I, I would say it's all of those because, uh, you know, again, I'm trying to create selected cohorts that are a good mix. We don't want a cohort that's like all people who work in, you know, the gas industry or something like that. Um, but what I would say is that is a category of people that... I haven't yet seen enough applications from because I think that it is a category of, of uh, interest that people may imposter syndrome themselves about. And that is creatives and designers and artists and writers. And like, because I think that, um, and that's something even I'm sure our website is not super clear on yet. It's, I think it's an important aspect of climate action that is, unrecognized. And that's the people who are really great at telling stories or eliciting emotions in others and, you know, who might find this experience useful in helping connect them with the sort of industry and the professionals so that like, or you're not looking for a job specifically as an artist in climate, but if this is um, uh, a topic that you're passionate about and that this experience would like help you, you know, write pieces or poems or share art um, more widely about this topic, then I definitely want to invite you to the fellowship for sure. And just to be clear about what people get from the fellowship and from being part of the climate base is do you get a, a certificate saying that you're part of climate base, you've done a, a course, and this is what you've achieved in very basic terms? Yes. Yeah. So we'll, we'll be having a sort of like a certificate or, or formal recognition document uh, that you can have. We're also going to be providing there will basically be a space on our website you know from this fir first fellowship onward that will sort of always show the names of the participants you know like these are our fellows from our first cohort as well as providing a space for like little blurbs or um, sort of project summaries from their capstone projects because again you know thinking about this as a sort of portfolio piece that people can work on that, you know, we want sort of, again, the legitimacy of people being able to look and see, yes, this was a sort of formal project done as part of our fellowship. Excellent. Okay. And just remind everybody about your website address, just so that people can log on to that. What's the website? Yep. It's climatebase.org. Um, and then for the fellowship, you can, there's a, a link at the top where you can go to climatebase.org slash fellowship to learn more. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Well, listen, um, just before you go, that there is one question I always ask all my listeners and everybody anticipates it. Um, and I suppose from your perspective, you're a young chap. So from your perspective, I have to say, 
you know, if you were back at school again, having the dreams that you're dreaming about now and the things that you're doing now, is there anything different that you would do at that age to change the course of your career or where you went? Probably not. Um, you know, I think during my college days, it, uh, it would be nice if I could sort of tell my past self to uh, recognize that it wasn't, again, uh, an intelligence uh, issue, that it was just a sort of program fit and like learning style in that space. But yeah, as young as I am, I've reached the age where I do value all of life's challenges and obstacles, at least in retrospect. And so, yeah, it's it's hard to look back and say that there's a thing that happened to me that I wish I could have avoided because then I would have also avoided the the lessons from that. Oh, well, said. I absolutely agree with you on that. Well, Jordan, it's been an absolute pleasure actually interviewing you. And it's been amazing going to some of the places that we've gone, places I've never gone before. Well, and the next time we'll be doing this uh, live on Twitch, right? I would love it. I'd love for you to do that because I'd be your first guest. I would definitely dive yes. in there and have the experience. So I'll probably be scared stiff, but I'll enjoy every minute of it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jordan, thanks again. A real pleasure. And uh, thanks for giving up your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much, David. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Jordan Arneson, linguist, engineer, and Twitch specialist, looking to maximize your positive global impact. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated keeping us safe on the roads of North America.